Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. You can also check out my blog, which I started about three years ago, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. Okay, so today is Monday, September 20th, 2021, and in this episode, we're going to wrap up our discussion about the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against North Carolina State arising from the basketball-related scandals. And on April 8th of 2020, NC State filed a response to Carol Cartwright's February 14th, 2020 referral letter. And it's not something that they had to do. It's something they chose to do. And I talked about the cover page to this document back several episodes ago to talk about what the stakes are here. And on the face page of this response to the referral letter, all of the attorneys who have been hired by NC State and who participated in drafting this response are listed on the front cover. It's a very impressive group of attorneys. You've got three high-powered law firms, big-time law firms, who are now protecting NC State's interests. And they include Bond, Shonick, and King. And there's an attorney there named Michael Glazier, who's really the preeminent attorney on NCAA infractions and enforcement cases. And he defends institutions who are being pulled through that process. And he actually worked at the NCAA in enforcement and infractions. So he he has uh, some interesting insight there. And then we have Cad Wallader, Wickersham, and Taft, which is a New York firm, one of the oldest firms in New York City. And then you have Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. They go by Paul Weiss. And that is an international firm. It's one of the largest firms in the country. And they have uh, Loretta Lynch on the team for them. And you may know who Loretta Lynch is. She's a former attorney general under President Obama. And she was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, the same court that all of these basketball-related cases sprang from. And she knows that stuff inside and out. So you've got some really heavy hitters here. And I think the fact that they're involved and that they are identified in this document really is an exclamation point on how important this case is. And while we're talking about attorneys general, I want to mention Alberto Gonzalez. Gonzalez was the White House counsel for George Bush, and uh, he was instrumental in formulating the response to the 9-11 attacks. Then he was also the attorney general for uh, a short term. But Gonzalez is involved in these cases, and he is on the Committee on Infractions. He also is on the Independent Resolution Referral Committee. And then as an aside, Gonzalez also served on the Uniform Law Commission Committee that was studying a uniform law on name, image, and likeness. I paid close attention to that process, and in my observations, Gonzalez was pretty open to NCAA interests. And he's an NCAA insider. If you're on the Committee on Infractions, you're on the inside. The NCAA is all about trying to convince the public that its infractions and enforcement process is just a cooperative effort with the member institutions based in large part on self-policing. And they're just a garden variety nonprofit just trying to keep the people in the association true to the NCAA's mission and its values, and that these cases shouldn't be subject to federal due process requirements. This process shouldn't be confrontational. It shouldn't be adversarial. <laughs> and you've got on both sides of this two former United States attorneys general. But I want to talk really at the broad brush level about what NC State says in this response to the referral letter. And I'm going to read selected portions and then just point out some of the basic themes that it identifies. And then I also want to be attentive to the tone of this document, because in my judgment, it does not read 
or feel confrontational or adversarial. It is straightforward and it is professional and it is deferential in large part because NC State is in this really interesting position in challenging NCAA authority. And that's what they have to do because of the way that those authorities have been abused in this case. So they're walking a fine line here because on the one hand, they need to state their objections. They need to preserve the record. They need to be clear about why they disagree with the NCAA's approach here and in uh, Carol Cartwright's interpretation of these new powers, the importation clause, and then the non-cooperation principles. And then on the other hand, presenting themselves as cooperative players consistent with this philosophy of cooperation. And then there is also another important practical dynamic that plays out in any adversary process or proceeding. And this is clearly an adversary process. And the fact that the NCAA refuses to acknowledge that this is an adversary process puts even more pressure on NC State to try to thread the needle here. But the the practical component of this is that NC State may have to wind up dealing with another case in the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. So they have to be mindful of how they pitch their criticisms, and they have to do it assuming that they could be right back in front of these same people and these same authorities in a completely different context. And it's not unlike lawyers who practice in small towns where there may be only a handful of judges. And if you're practicing in that environment, you have to be really careful before you accuse a decision maker of bias or uh, unfairness or depriving you of process rights. That is really tricky terrain. If you do that and you fail, if you don't achieve the result that you intended to achieve, you've probably done more harm than good, not just in that case for the client you're representing in that case, but also in future cases because you're going to have to appear before the same judge. And there's a similar dynamic here. And the way that NC State frames its presentation of this response, I think, speaks to that, that fine line that they have to walk. So I just want to read this introductory paragraph that sort of sets the table for the entire discussion. And this document's only about seven pages long, so it is tight and it hits the main points. And then it attaches some exhibits that support the analysis. But this first paragraph in the introduction says, Through this response, North Carolina State University answers the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions petition requesting referral of this case to the newly created Independent Accountability Resolution Process. We believe the referral petition prejudges NC State on material open questions of fact and raises serious questions as to whether the Committee on Infractions process would generate a fair and impartial hearing for the university. As a result, NC State reluctantly cedes to the Committee on Infractions referral to the Independent Accountability Resolution process. The reasons for our reluctance are described in further detail below, not just to highlight NC State's due process concerns, but in an effort to ensure that the new independent accountability resolution process structure is fair and transparent to all members and perceived as such. Finally, despite these disagreements, we emphasize that NC State remains committed to continuing to work collaboratively with the NCAA to resolve the remaining issues in this matter. And then NC State walks through the history of the case the overview and the background. And it has an important observation here that is an overlay for this entire debacle. They say, instead of adopting the Rice Commission's recommendations as submitted, the NCAA Board of Directors adopted a version of an independent review wherein independent committee members were appointed, trained, and supported by the NCAA staff in much the same way as the Committee on Infractions. Unfortunately, the new group does not operate under any set of rules promulgated by the American Arbitration Association or any analogous rules, nor are the decisions from the new group subject to review under the Federal Arbitration Act. Rather, decisions of the new independent committee are not subject to review by any appellate body, either internal or external to the NCAA. And I've talked about this uh, before, but I just want to emphasize it again. One of the primary
primary concerns here, and it is a legitimate concern, is that the way that the NCAA interpreted and incorporated the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball as they relate to the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process are not true at all to what the commission actually recommended. And there is no independence when you have this crossover representation on the governing boards in the independent resolution process. The two oversight committees, the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee, and then this referral committee are loaded with NCAA insiders. And the enforcement staff is directly involved in the independent process. And as I've said several times before, that flies in the face of the very purpose of the independent accountability resolution process. And then NC State gets to its substantive arguments, and it has a general heading titled, The Referral Petition and the Independent Accountability Resolution Process Raise Fairness Concerns for NC State. And kind of a core paragraph here that really summarizes what NC State is concerned about here. And NC State says, By submitting a referral petition that prejudges open issues of fact, uses legitimate procedural inquiry as a basis for an adverse finding against NC State, and pushes a member institution into a process that causes it to lose the right of appeal. The Committee on Infractions has not been faithful to the principles of fairness. In doing so, the Committee on Infractions may have tainted the adjudication process, whether by the Committee on Infractions or the Independent Resolution Panel. When legitimate issues of fact and concerns about the application of an untested and untried procedural bylaw are taken as challenges, instead of an opportunity for discussion and resolution, questions as to fundamental fairness arise. Moreover, for any process to be both fair and perceived as fair, the independent accountability resolution process, fact finders and adjudicators must receive matters without biased or incorrect determinations of disputed facts and rules as contained in the referral petition. And then they drop a couple of footnotes, and there's one footnote that's really interesting. At the very end of that paragraph, NC State's saying, look, we don't even think that this case meets the requirements, meets those seven criteria that Cartwright used in her referral letter. They view this case as really a routine garden variety case involving impermissible benefits, and these kind of cases have always been resolved through the Committee on Infractions. And it's an interesting approach here because they are reluctantly acceding to this new process, I think in part because uh, Cartwright's letter is so biased that it's hard to imagine that the Committee on Infractions hasn't been tainted by that. But they don't agree that this case is suitable for referral. And that's an interesting position because NC State doesn't appear to be challenging the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations or the existence of this independent process. They just think that the way that the NCAA has put this together isn't true to the Commission's recommendations. And I think that's true. But if there ever is a case that is suitable for this new independent process, this is it. And so I'm not quite sure where NC State's coming from here. What they're essentially saying is that the bias is so clear that both processes are tainted. And I think they're absolutely right. And then they go into a discussion about the Committee on Infractions' incorrect application of the importation bylaw. And NC State makes some of the arguments that I've discussed before that they're really cherry-picking evidence that really isn't suitable for importation in any case because of the unreliability of it or the nature of it, like the information from opening statements. Then they also point out that NC State was not a party in the Southern District of New York case, and it was not in a position to present evidence or cross-examine witnesses or any of the procedural rights you would be afforded in a criminal case, or any case for that matter, even in a civil case. And all NC State was doing was pointing that out, and that constituted adversarial posturing. But on the actual language of that importation clause, NC State says that Carol Cartwright conflated two different principles. And one is taking facts established from another proceeding versus evidence submitted and positions taken. And they are two different things. And I think Cartwright at least implicitly acknowledged that distinction in her discussion of those issues in the referral letter. But that's an important point here. And NC State seems to be saying that facts established are 
okay, they're fair game if they meet all of the reliability criteria that you would normally consider in borrowing from one case and bringing evidence into another. But the way that the NCAA and the way that Carol Cartwright interpreted this evidence submitted and positions taken, they are basically saying that comments from an opening statement are of the same reliability, credibility, and validity as facts established. And that simply isn't the case. And as I said in my earlier episodes, when I was talking about the context of this infractions case, all of it swirls around this $40,000 payment. And at the trial in the Southern District of New York, we have this TJ Gasnola guy, the sketchy guy saying, yeah, I took $40,000 down to Raleigh. I gave it to Orlando early, and it was specifically intended to try to cement in Dennis Smith Jr.'s commitment to NC State. But beyond that, there is zero evidence, and the NCAA and Carol Cartwright have just cobbled together cherry-picked evidence that's not even evidence. (laughs) It doesn't rise to the level of evidence under their interpretation of this importation clause, and they think evidence submitted and positions taken is good enough. And they all of a sudden become facts established, and then the NCAA can basically connect dots to the flow of the money and its intended purpose. And there's an absence of true evidence and any true facts established to prove that up. And then NC State talks a little bit about its concerns about the independent accountability resolution process. And it says, while it accedes to the referral, it does so reluctantly and under protest due to concerns with the new independent accountability resolution process structure. And then they have a couple of bullet points. And the first one is that there's no appeal in this new process. There's not an appellate body. And they say it's a necessary check, particularly when any entity is attempting to implement new rules policies or procedures. And NC State is absolutely right here. And again, the NCAA is just in denial about the significance of these new tools, the uh, uncertainty surrounding them. As Stan Wilcox said in that June 12th interview with CBS Sports or comments that CBS Sports covered, he said, look, I wouldn't want to be the first school to be run through this process. And the reason for that is that these are really big issues, and they're issues of first impression. And NC State says this, in any document like this, there's some money quotes, and this is one of them. They say, instead, the factual and procedural concerns raised by the university in its response are legitimate ones that require well-reasoned resolution by an unbiased adjudicator. We question the Committee on Infraction's objectivity because it took legitimate issues of fact and procedural concerns as inappropriate challenges instead of an opportunity for discussion and resolution. And that's really the heart of the matter. And this goes right back to the arrogance that the NCAA brings into its infractions and enforcement process. And that arrogance was on full display in Carol Cartwright's referral letter. And then back to this independent accountability resolution process and NC State's concerns. They have a section titled, let's see, what was the second one here? Fundamental fairness includes both fairness of procedures and timely resolution. So they're complaining about the timing here and the fact that the complex case unit has at least theoretical jurisdiction to come back in and do more investigation work. And then NC State talks about its commitment to cooperation, and that is an entirely separate section. And this is where NC State really has to come back around and say, look, we've done everything that you asked us to do. We have fully satisfied our obligations to cooperate in this process. And in fact, it's because of our cooperative efforts that this case moved along as quickly as it did. And maybe one of the reasons why this is the first case that's running through this new process, because we cooperated. We did everything that you asked us to do in every aspect of the case leading up to the NCAA's notice of allegations. So they say, NC State fully accepts the responsibility of operating its athletics programs in accordance with NCAA and ACC rules and cooperating with the NCAA when potential NCAA rules issues arise. In this matter, NC State worked cooperatively with the FBI, the Southern District of New York, the prosecutors, and the NCAA. During the Southern District of New York investigation, NC State responded to 
several inquiries from prosecutors and made numerous NC State employees available to the prosecutors, ultimately resulting in our Senior Associate Athletics Director for Compliance testifying as a key witness for the government at the trial. Her testimony included details about NC State's extensive systems that are in place to detect, deter, and report NCAA violations. As the NCAA is well aware, the university also extensively cooperated and worked with outside counsel for the NCAA, and they paren Wilmer Hale (laughs) and the NCAA enforcement staff to arrive at a fair resolution after a fair process. And they go on. In raising the procedural and factual concerns, NC State is by no means prejudging the objectivity of the independent accountability resolution process fact finders or adjudicators, and it remains committed to working collaboratively with the NCAA to resolve the few remaining outstanding issues in this case. I just want to go back to the first part of what I just read. It's clear as it can be that NC State did everything within its power to cooperate at every level. And Carol Cartwright's suggestion that not only wasn't true, but that NC State had actually engaged in adversarial posturing because it deigned to disagree with the NCAA's interpretation of this new and extraordinarily powerful tool. That is really a problem here. If the NCAA wants to reinforce its policy of cooperation between NCAA infractions and enforcement authorities and the member institutions, it should be applauding NC State's cooperation here. And it's just ironic that it is cherry-picking innuendo and speculation and opening statement arguments and all this stuff to nail NC State here. But it doesn't give NC State any credit for offering up the Senior Associate Athletics Director for Compliance as a star witness for the government. And the subject of her testimony was the extensive systems that are in place to detect, deter, and report NCAA violations. So the NCAA was okay pulling the bad stuff out of that case, but they don't bother to even acknowledge that the testimony of this NC State witness went to the very cooperation that now Carol Cartwright and the NCAA is saying that NC state didn't provide. And it remains to be seen whether this independent resolution panel is going to cover for Cartwright on all this stuff. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about when I look at what the this panel is faced with. But NC State then closes it out and they basically say that, you know, we're working with you. And I talked about this very last paragraph here. And really, this is a necessary paragraph given the way that NC State has been run through the grist mill here. But they say that NC State has a long history of working cooperatively and collaboratively with the NCAA on matters large and small, and it remains open to working collaboratively as part of the independent accountability resolution process to address its concerns and to resolve this matter as efficiently as possible. However, by conceding to referral, NC State does not concede its substantive right to appeal. Further, in light of the various concerns described herein, NC State also reserves all rights and remedies both within and outside of the NCAA structure. And that's it. And looking at the attorneys that NC State has on the job here and the necessity of that final paragraph under the circumstances, it's clear that NC State's not messing around here because if they get screwed by the independent resolution panel, they've got some really good arguments that they could take into federal court. And one of them would be a challenge to this Tarkanian case. And one of the things, and I may talk about this later, the central issue in Tarkanian was whether or not the NCAA was acting as a state actor by essentially forcing the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to adopt the NCAA's punishments and to get rid of Jerry Tarkanian. And the Supreme Court said, no, it was a 5-4 opinion. And remember, that decision was in 1988, a different era. But the dissent said, look, there is clear connection here between the state university and the NCAA in terms of the action that was actually taken, the penalties that were actually imposed. And that constitutes state action. And in this case, and in all of these cases arising from the basketball scandal, you have a different type of state action, I think you could argue here. And that is that the NCAA is essentially using the FBI, the Justice Department, federal prosecutors, federal judge, 
and federal advocates as the decision makers in their infractions and enforcement process through this really expansive view of its importation authorities and also the refusal to cooperate provisions. They are basically adopting the most clear-cut case of state action, and that is action by the federal government in a criminal case as the central component in its infractions and enforcement process. And I think that's a real problem here. And I think a federal court could say, without overturning Tarkanian, that this is just a different situation. And even though we're not going to say that the NCAA is a state actor for all purposes, it is a state actor in this case in the way that they have interpreted and applied this importation provision. And this is a case of a private actor being entwined with a state actor and substituting the state action of that state actor for the private actor's decision-making. But I, I think there are some good grounds to just go right to the heart of the NCAA's arrogance because of the Tarkanian decision and the absence of federal due process protections for institutions and people who are on the receiving end of the NCAA's penalties. So again, I think NC State has played the cards that they've been dealt about as well as they can be played at this point. And again, there's a, a lot that remains to be seen here. And this decision that the independent resolution panel comes out with, whenever it comes out with it, I'm going to talk about the timing here in a second. That's going to be really important. And that's why I wanted to talk about this case, because it raises issues that really go to the core of how the NCAA sees its position in college sports in the new environment that we have now, and the extent to which it's going to try to rely on its old understanding of amateurism-based limits and amateurism-based impermissible benefits going forward. And that's, that's important. And this case kind of forces the NCAA to talk about that because the NCAA has really been in denial about the Austin decision and it doesn't talk about it and it doesn't want to talk about it because it's just bad news. That is bad media for the NCAA. But this whole world is operating around it with really relaxed restrictions and particularly in this name, image, and likeness context. But I think the broader principle of amateurism simply doesn't have the power that it had before the Supreme Court decision. And the NCAA and advocacy groups like the Knight Commission are going to have to, at some point, take a firm position post-Austin on where they stand with respect to amateurism and amateurism's role as a governing principle, but more importantly, as an economic principle to the extent it is regulating the cost of labor and also regulating the competitive advantage, disadvantage game in the talent acquisition market. They're going to have to address that directly. And I think that this case should put those issues front and center. And again, it'll be interesting to see if the independent resolution panel has the guts to address those issues on those terms. We'll see. But I want to talk about some of the things I think it's going to have to address. And then a couple of things I think it should address. And then also look at the, the timing here. Because remember, this response to the referral notice was on April 8th of 2020. The hearing in this case by the independent resolution panel after the case is transferred to this new process, you don't have the hearing until August of 2021. That's 16 months. And in that 16 months, the college sports world got turned upside down and inside out. You had COVID, you had the fall football decisions, you had the uh, clear evidence that the Power 5 football product is just operating as a rogue product completely outside of the NCAA. And then you had their the NCAA's Iron Throne campaign in the Senate with all these Senate hearings in a Republican-controlled Senate, and the NCAA thought they were getting their way. And Mark Emmert's arrogance and incompetence botched that. And then the uh, NCAA lost its advantage in the Senate, its partisan advantage in the Senate after the Georgia special elections. And then out of nowhere, they just pull the plug on voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness without any explanation. And their uh, campaign in the Senate is on life support. And then you had the Austin decision, which completely changed the narrative and the unanimity of that 
decision and the way that the court framed the uh, history of amateurism and its relevance in college sports really was a game changer. I think that was a blow that the NCAA just hasn't fully absorbed yet. And then you had this conference realignment you know, where these conferences that were supposed to be singing kumbaya in their campaign in the Senate all of a sudden were turning on each other. All those dynamics were a real problem. And then you had uh, Mark Emmert just being put into the closet. And now we've got a new and improved NCAA with a, a new public face, and that's Bob Gates. And this hearing occurs after that campaign begins at the NCAA. It's makeover campaign, it's new website, it's uh, reliance on Gates as the public face and their de-emphasis of Emmert. So you have all these things playing out. So I think at a minimum, this panel is going to have to address several things. First, whether the independent accountability resolution process conforms to the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations and whether there are built-in conflicts of interest there, because that goes to the core of the integrity of the system and the concerns that NC State has raised. In a related vein, they're going to have to address Carol Cartwright's referral letter, because NC State has pointed out in very clear terms, and they have really good arguments, that there is obvious bias and prejudgment in that referral letter, and also in the comments of the NCAA National Office executives prior to the notice of allegation, and also Carol Cartwright's comments through her work at the Knight Commission. And in what role she played with the Knight Commission, she was in an obvious conflict of interest. NC State doesn't really go after that, and we don't know what was presented at this hearing. We don't know what arguments NC State made at the hearing. It's not a public hearing, and there's been virtually zero coverage on the backside of it, probably because of the breaches of confidentiality that the NCAA engaged in before the notice of allegations. So I think they're trying to keep this under wraps, and they should if they're being true to their own rules and their own legislation. So we have that issue. How are they going to address it? They can't ignore it. They simply can't ignore it. And then we get to the meat and potatoes of the issue, and they're going to have to interpret this importation clause and these non-cooperation provisions, and then look at whether they're going to use an expansive interpretation, as Carol Cartwright did in her referral letter, or a more narrow interpretation that NC State was advocating. Inherent in all of those three issues is really the overhanging due process issue and the Tarkanian case. And it'll be interesting to see if the referral panel invokes NCAA versus Tarkanian and basically says, look, we have no control here. This is a decision of the United States Supreme Court. The NCAA can pretty much do whatever it wants to in terms of due process. And we can't second guess that. It'll be interesting to see what they say there. Then we're looking at the sufficiency of the evidence and the reliability of the evidence. So however they get to this importation clause, whatever they think is appropriate to bring in or inappropriate to bring in, they're going to have to address the quality of the evidence, the reliability of the evidence, and the sufficiency of the evidence to determine whether or not NC State has violated NCAA rules. And and then in those core areas that I think they have to address, we'll get a real good sense of what's going on here in this new process and where the NCAA is coming from in its infractions and enforcement authorities as they relate to the membership in a brave new world that exists in the fall of 2021. And then there are a couple of issues that I think the panel should address. I hope that the hearing panel talks about the state of amateurism whenever it issues its decision, whether the core purpose underlying the entire infractions and enforcement process is adequate justification for how the NCAA has behaved here. NCAA's fundamental principles underlying its business model have been called into question by unanimous Supreme Court. I just don't know how they can avoid that. And then are they going to address the hypocrisy of the shoe and apparel relationships and how these schools who are permitted by the NCAA to take tens of millions of dollars from these shoe companies are then 
put in a position where they are going to be given draconian penalties if one of the athletes who's forced to wear that product by the university gets a couple bucks on the side through the shoe company. How, how do you complain about that if you're the NCAA at a moral level, at a fairness level, at an equity level, at a, a principled level, and you're claiming to base your authorities on principles? Well, what about the principle that is invoked when you permit everybody in the system to take this shoe company money, just as Sonny Ficaro said back in 2001 to the Knight Commission, and he said, we can only offer the money. You're the ones who are taking it, and you're going to take it, you're going to cash my check, and you're going to come back for more because you can't get enough of it. And he was absolutely right. In that context, how can Dennis Smith Jr. and Orlando Early and Mark Gottfried be viewed as criminals when the university is dealing with these same people and taking their money? It's just fundamentally unfair. And we can talk about playing by the rules and cheating, and I'm going to do some episodes on that really at the uh, philosophical level. And I'm going to go into the archives back to the early 20th century to analyze that issue. There's an opportunity here for this referral panel to really speak to some of the core values that are at issue here. And again, the NCAA can't run from those by saying, well, we're just dealing with these technical issues. And the resolution panel shouldn't run from those by dealing with just the technical issues because all those issues swirl around these values that the NCAA has sold to the American public and to its corporate sponsors and to the advertisers and to the free world. And those values simply have to be on the table when uh, this decision comes out. And it takes me to another point here. And so I think this will be the last one before I close this thing out. And that is, when is this decision going to come? And it's going to be real interesting to see how long the independent resolution panel holds on to this because there's some really important things happening right now. The NCAA is in a fight for its life. It's in a fight for relevancy. And that is how Bob Gates put it when he stepped forward in front of the microphone and agreed to lead this constitutional committee. And so we don't know what's going to happen with that constitutional committee. We'll be paying close attention to that. We also don't know what's going on in Congress. And there's no doubt that the NCAA is positioning itself to go back to Congress. And it's my belief that having Bob Gates be put out front and center and, and putting Mark Emmert in the witness protection program, the NCAA witness protection program, is really a precursor to their next move in the Senate, because I think you're going to see Bob Gates being the face of that next Senate campaign, whatever it looks like. And I think it's going to revolve around preemption. And I talked about that back in connection with these June 2021 hearings in the Senate Commerce Committee. But we have that as well. And then the other thing that you can't rule out here is that we've got midterm elections that are going to be coming up here in the not too distant future. We're just around the corner with a possible shift in the Senate back to Republican control. And if that happens, I can promise you that the NCAA is going to be back in Congress like flies on a rib roast. And they're going to try to come up with something that has at least the appearance of bipartisan support, something that uh, Biden could sign. But the NCAA is not thinking about adjusting to this new environment or changing their my way or the highway approach to their compensation limits. It's not the way they think. And we have the same people in charge who are trying to make the case for transformative change. They're not changing a damn thing. They're going to be right back in Congress arguing for the exact same things. And remember, the Austin decision was important because the NCAA didn't get absolute antitrust immunity, at least not from the United States Supreme Court through a, a judicially created antitrust exemption, but they can get that from Congress. So they haven't given up on that and all the things that they wanted originally in their Iron Throne campaign for the regulatory authority in college sports, all those things are attainable. They just can't get antitrust immunity through federal courts. They're going to have to get it from Congress. And the NCAA is going to be coming right back around as soon as they think that they have enough credibility restored and they have 
kind of reshaped their image enough for the Senate to receive them as a credible spokesperson on behalf of the interests that they're going to be promoting. And those interests are come right back around to the ones they started with in May of 2019. And it's going to be antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees, and federal preemption of any laws that interfere with the NCAA's authorities or compensation limits. That's what they want. That's what they're going to keep fighting for. And that's where this is headed. So who knows? Maybe this will end in a whimper and the resolution panel will just weasel out of these big picture issues and slap NC State on the wrist and signal how they're going to handle these other basketball related cases. And then we just move along, merrily along. And really, that's what Dan Rasher was saying, this expert that the defendants in the Gatto case hired. And he said, look, this whole infractions and enforcement process is kabuki theater. And with these high value division one men's basketball players where a single player can change a program's fortunes and bring in ridiculous money for the university. Everybody in the decision-making chain in the, at the university level in the talent acquisition market really has this off-the-books understanding. It's implausible deniability, and I've talked about that too and did a blog post on it. But built into their approach to acquiring that talent is a risk tolerance for the fact that they might get caught, that they may be subjected to NCAA penalties, but that historically those penalties haven't been severe enough to deter these institutions, and we're talking Power 5 schools here, to deter the Power 5 schools from continuing to acquire that talent the way they always have. And it's not going to change, and this is all just a big charade to try to preserve for public consumption the appearance of an amateur product and the appearance of a commitment to amateurism, the student-athlete, the collegiate model, and the integrity of college sports. And that's what Ronald Smith, the sports historian, talked about in his 1988 book, Sports and Freedom. And he said that this whole amateur professional dilemma where schools openly engage in professionalism, aggressive professionalism behind the institutional veil, and they're so embarrassed by it that they don't want anybody to know how deeply embedded those commercial and professional values are at the institutional level. So they go out and publicly preen about amateurism so that they can save face. This is all a big face-saving charade. And I want to go back to Smith's book, Sports and Freedom, and just read something to you. Uh, He did a chapter titled Amateur College Sport, an Untenable Concept in a Free and Open Society. And that really is one of the central themes of his book, that trying to transfer this aristocratic Victorian era British social convention and use it as the framework for the unique relationship as it exists in America between sport and higher education really was was a fool's errand from the very beginning. So let me just read a little bit about how Smith talks about this amateur professional dilemma that he describes. So Smith says, By the early 20th century, there was probably no college in America which was able to preserve amateurism in men's sports as competition for money and non-money prizes, contests against professionals, collection of gate receipts, support for training tables, provision for athletic tutors, recruitment and payment of athletes, and the hiring of professional coaches pervaded the intercollegiate athletic scene. Professionalism had invaded college sports and had defeated amateurism as it was understood in the 19th century. So remember, we're talking about the early 20th century here. To conduct athletics in a professional model while calling them amateur was both a self-contradiction and a hypocrisy, pretense at virtuous character without possessing virtue. To call collegiate sport amateur was in fact play-acting, the ancient Greek definition of the term hypocrisy. Intercollegiate athletics, which had many virtues according to numerous individuals, was acting the part of amateur sport while playing like professional athletics. Thus, the amateur professional athletic dilemma developed. If a college had truly amateur sport, it would lose contests and thus prestige. If a college acknowledged outright professional sport, the college would lose respectability as a middle class or higher class institution. Be amateur and lose athletically to those who were less amateur, be outright professional, and lose social esteem. And that is it in a nutshell. And remember, Smith is talking about the iteration of college sports that existed in the early 20th century. Now, 
two decades into the 21st century, the commercialization and professionalization is so ubiquitous and such an essential component of the business model that the consumers of big-time college sports don't even bother to be distracted by the amateur professional dilemma. It doesn't exist. It's a professional product, and it's being conducted under the banner of a school that they have an attachment to. And I think that's what the evidence showed in these antitrust suits. It's not amateurism itself that drives the value in the product. It is the consumer's attachment to the university. And because the athletes are attached to the university, then the consumer has loyalty to the product at that university. But what has happened in the academic community, and this is really a a conceit of the academic community, is that they still cling to the symbols of the amateurism side of that professional amateur dilemma. And the 1991 Knight Commission report on intercollegiate athletics is the perfect example because that report came in well-intentioned but nevertheless self-righteous attachment to these outdated ideals. And they built a model of presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics around those false ideals. And those ideals have proven to be a miserable failure in practice because the very presidents that were put in control of intercollegiate athletics have insisted on the very corruption and corrupting influences that they are now railing against. But what has remained, the the residue of that elitism and that conceit is still alive and well at the rhetorical level. So you still have people, and Mark Emmert's a perfect example of that, and he's a perfect university president in the 21st century. Mark Emmert's rhetoric is valuable to the system because he is a relentless hypocrite. He is a hypocrite who will stand in front of a camera and profess to be a true believer in the principles of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model and the integrity of college sports, and that in and of itself has value. That is what this discussion has been reduced to. All you have left is the rhetoric, and the volume of the rhetoric has gone up in direct proportion to the hypocrisy and the increased stakes and all of this increased economic activity around college sports. And two sports, football and big-time men's basketball, Power 5 football, and Power 5 basketball. We're not looking honestly at who those people are because that bumps up against some very uncomfortable truths. And in the next episodes, I'm going to talk about some bigger picture issues. And one of them is that the entire infractions and enforcement process was built around regulating competition for athletes just like Dennis Smith Junior. No offense to field hockey players, but you don't have schools throwing themselves even at the most highly rated field hockey players in the United States because they don't have economic value to the business model. It's a nice thing to have, and we can put them on the cover of the monthly magazine. But not only do those athletes, as athletes, not have any economic value to the university, they are very expensive because the scholarships that these athletes are getting have to be paid for out of the athletics budget. Where does the money come from? Dennis Smith Jr. and people just like him. And that is why every Power 5 school in the country was drooling over Dennis Smith Jr. because an athlete of his quality in the sport of basketball could completely change the fortunes of a basketball team. And that is priceless. You can't put a value on that. And that's why you have these intense recruiting battles. That's why you have money swirling around these kids. And that is why you have NCAA infractions and enforcement people paying a hell of a lot more attention to Dennis Smith Jr. than to the field hockey player. And I think that what this NC State case also points out and Carol Cartwright's rhetoric in that referral letter proves up is that the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process is nothing more than exactly what Ronald Smith was describing in the professional amateur dilemma. They are publicly preening, the NCAA is publicly preening, to make it appear as if they are on the right side of that dilemma and they are all about the righteousness of amateurism. The very people who are pumping this public narrative and coming after kids just like Dennis Smith Jr. wouldn't have a career without the revenue generated in the March Madness tournament and their contract with 
CBS. And all that revenue is generated in large measure by the Dennis Smith Juniors of the world, this elite group of athletes, overwhelmingly African-American athletes in high-level Division I men's basketball that give that contract its value, that give that tournament its value. And without the Dennis Smith Juniors of the world, Kevin Lennon and Mark Emmert and Stan Wilcox and all the people in the offices in Indianapolis who were doing the work for the enforcement staff would have to find a new job. And the irony of their zealous, self-righteous campaign to present this public facade of honor and integrity is just a manifestation of the professional amateur dilemma that Smith described so accurately in 1988. But the broader point here is that the amateur professional dilemma still exists, but it only exists because the in-system stakeholders who are benefiting from the status quo are still playing that game. And they don't have the courage to step in front of a microphone and say, this is a fraud. The entire system is based on lies. And we have been falling back on those lies in order to try to save face. That hypocrisy does far more damage to the integrity of higher education than any violations of the principle of amateurism ever could. And I think Ronald Smith is absolutely right on that point. And, you know, what happens with this NC State case is going to be really interesting because it may provide some insight into these really big questions. So we'll see if the panel comes out with some heavy-hitting penalties and they want to bring the hammer down. They're looking at a lawsuit and could challenge the whole assumptions underlying the infractions and enforcement process. And we'll see if there's any intelligent response to the circumstances that they have found themselves in. And it's all of their own making, completely of their own making. So in the next episode, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about some big picture issues that swirl around the enforcement and infractions process and some of the realities built into that process that the NCAA doesn't want to talk about. And also how this process evolved. And I'm going to go back to Walter Byers and talk about some of the things that I talked about in the Pay for Play series on the evolution of big time college sports in America. And one of the most important milestones in the history of the NCAA was the acquisition of meaningful enforcement jurisdiction and authorities in the early 1950s and how the NCAA acquired those is really important. And we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to look at the racial component of the NCAA enforcement and infractions process. It's something they don't want to talk about. And I'm going to go to some statistics published on the website for this independent accountability resolution process. They have their own website. <laughs> they have the process as it's described. And I haven't talked much about that, but I'm going to do that to look at who they actually wind up bringing the hammer down on. And then I also want to talk a little bit about how the NCAA has historically dealt with actors outside of its authority who they believe have uh, interfered with the business model that uh, the NCAA operates in. And that's really another look at this bad actor narrative that has played out with athlete agents. And it uh, has played out with all these third-party participants in the name, image, and likeness market. And it is playing out in these basketball-related scandals with the shoe companies. But again, with these shoe companies, they're, they're in a tough spot here, the NCAA and the Power Five, because they're having it both ways. And then after that discussion, I think I'm going to come back around to some current events and, and do another current events episode on some interesting things that have taken place over the last couple of months that I've been bookmarking. So with that, I will close this thing out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.